History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 89, Wars for the West. Now we're in a bit of a funny recording situation today because I'm using my new post-Christmas mic, but I also have a cold, so we'll see how it goes. Last time, we wrapped up Artaxerxes II's war in the Aegean. The Western Empire had been in conflict in some capacity for nearly 20 years. No sooner was Cyrus the Younger defeated at the Battle of Cunaxa than Sparta invaded Anatolia. That invasion was only repelled after five years by just creating too many problems in Greece for Sparta to ignore. But the Corinthian War ultimately dragged the Persian Empire along for the ride, as wars in Greece so often do. In the middle of that conflict, the Cypriot petty king Evagoras went into open rebellion that was not quelled until three years after Greece had settled into an uneasy new arrangement under the king's peace. Satraps had risen fallen, risen again, and fallen once more many, many times. And the powerful men of Anatolia were shifting around more like pieces on a game board than actual governors. Yet, no major revolt broke out, and all this effort, both military and political, was in service to a higher cause. The cause of putting those rebel Egyptians back in their place, which was either under Artaxerxes' boot or at the bottom of the Nile. I covered the important details for setting up the battles in Anatolia, Greece, and Cyprus in episodes 82 and 83, introduced the 29th dynasty of Egypt, and made sure to get all of the big satraps at the time, Tissaphernes, Pharnabazus, and Orontes, into their proper places. By now, all three have been removed from office. Tissaphernes was beheaded, and Lydia was on its fifth satrap in just 13 years under 
Atophrodates. Pharnabazus found a higher calling in the royal court with his new wife, Princess Apama, while his son, Ariobarzanes, ran the show in Phrygia. And Orontes was being shamed in Mysia with persons unknown in control of Armenia. However, we have to jump back in time a bit to tell the story of Egypt. Cyrus's rebellion had given the Egyptians cover to re-establish an independent kingdom. All-out war with Sparta, in Persian territory for almost a decade, certainly didn't help matters. If Pharaoh Hakor had hoped supporting Evagoras would further distract the Persians, it had the opposite effect. Different scholars assign different dates to the first campaign to retake Egypt. Egyptologist Joachim Quack puts it in 401 and claims Cyrus's rebellion pulled Persian forces away. Acclaimed Achaemenist Pierre Briant puts it in some unknowable year in the 380s. I personally think both of those ideas are silly and that we know exactly when it happened because Isocrates the Athenian tells us. Isocrates references a campaign led by Abracomus, the satrap of Assyria, with the aid of Tethrostes and Pharnabazus. Tethrostes was satrap of Lydia for just a few months in 393, so that seems like the logical point in time for him to be involved here. One year after Agesilus withdrew from Persian territory, and shortly before Pharnabazus was promoted out of Phrygia. It's probably no coincidence that this was the exact same time that Hakor started providing aid to Cyprus. Unfortunately, we don't know much about this campaign, only that Isocrates says that it lasted for three years, suffering more losses than they inflicted before Persia withdrew, after which Pharaoh Hakor began trying to expand his influence in Achaemenid territory. However, even that could explain a few things. There are some events in Judea that I'll get to in a bit. It would explain why Arab soldiers were sent to aid Evagoras. And it would explain another passage from Isocrates that mentions a war in Syria. Given that it lasted for three years and Tithrostes and Pharnabazus cycled out of their satrapies in 393 and 392 respectively, it may be that it was actually a war with three successive commanders, rather than all three fighting there at the same time. A significant part of the problem was probably the hostility of the Arab kingdoms and the fractured nature of the Persian fleet. Artaxerxes' first attempt on Egypt was treated like any other rebellion. But Egypt wasn't just any satrapy. Only accessible over land through treacherous desert, well defended by a single stronghold at Pelusium, and commanding its own powerful navy with nearly endless supplies of grain, Egypt required more force than Artaxerxes could muster in the 390s. Cambyses had only conquered Egypt in the first place with the aid of Arab guides and a newborn Persian navy. Hakor 
expertly eliminated both of those resources. He gained favor with the Arabs, and they turned against the Persians. He funded Sparta to drag out the war in the north. He funded Evagoras to drag out the war in the west, and to create interference on the primary naval route between Persian territory and Egypt. At best, the Persian fleet was split into four parts, and only one could be sent to Egypt. At worst, it was in thirds, and none of them could be sent to the Nile. The 390s campaign was just doomed from the start. It's probably no coincidence that Persian attention shifted away from Egypt and over to Cyprus in 391, or that Artaxerxes made a strong push for some kind of Greek peace in the years that followed. Egypt was paramount, but these other conflicts were dragging Persian attention and resources away from that goal. Their other rivals in the Aegean were sucking up military capacity needed to engage Hakor even as the pharaoh started reaching deeper into Achaemenid territory. Egypt was long past its height under the Ramessid pharaohs of the New Kingdom, nearly 700 years earlier, but that history was still well known along the Nile, and the dream of returning to that grandeur was not forgotten. At this point, Hakor really ramped up his interventions in the Persian Empire, sowing dissent and supporting rebels, apparently with special attention to Cyprus and Anatolia, more so than his own borders, probably because keeping the Persian army far away was preferable to having them carry the momentum of a success in the Levant back to Egypt. But now we have dealt with the end of the Corinthian War, Evagoras, and the short-lived rebellion of Glos, son of Tamos. Those were not the only direct conflicts playing out in the Western Empire, though. I also teased the introduction of Datames, and now it is time to flesh him out. There are two biographies, really more like hagiographies, of ancient Persians from antiquity. Well, three if you count the Cyropedia, but I don't. We're already familiar with Plutarch's Life of Artaxerxes. But there is also The Life of Datames by Cornelius Nepos, another writer of short biographical lives detailing the deeds of ancient figures. Most of Nepos's Datames will come into play later, but the opening lines alone can be extrapolated into some major events right now, especially when taken in conjunction with another brief reference to Persian affairs from Isocrates. Arguing that Athens should abandon the king's peace and rebuild their empire to counter Spartan influence, the Athenian rhetorician pointed to all the dissent playing out in the Western Empire. He mentions anti-Persian sentiment in the Greek cities, naturally, as well as Caria and Lycia. He also mentions a few outright revolts, including those in Cyprus and Egypt, but we already know about those. Most importantly, he says, Of the cities in Cilicia, the greater number are held by those who would side with us, 
us being Athens. On its own, that claim is kind of confounding. But taken with what we know about Datames, it might make more sense. Nepos identifies Datames' father as the governor of Cilicia near Cappadocia, and says that Datames himself ascended to that position after serving in the Caducian campaign of 383. Datames' father is identified as a Carian, and his mother as a Paphlagonian named Scythisa or possibly a woman of mixed Paphlagonian and Scythian background. That would explain her son's Iranian name, and why he was allowed to rise through the ranks of the imperial administration. It's been a while since we checked in with Cilicia. Last time we saw them, King Cionysus III was ruling a semi-autonomous kingdom in southern Anatolia, that doubled as one great big naval base. Cionysus wound up with sons on both sides of the Battle of Canaxa, and is never heard from again in our sources. The next time his territory comes up, at least part of it has a Persian governor in the form of Datames. But why only part? Now I do have to admit that this is largely my own speculation. Of course, the historical evidence that I'm going to reference does exist, but I haven't seen any published scholarship come to the same conclusions that I do. Generally, this partial control of Cilicia is chalked up to a wide-ranging administrative reform in Anatolia. But I'm not convinced. In light of Isocrates' claim that many cities in Cilicia would side with Athens in a war against Persia, it certainly sounds like contested territory. Admittedly, we have many references to the commanders against Evagoras working out of Cilicia, and many coins minted by those commanders from this period. However, that evidence is universally concentrated in the east, i.e. the part of Cilicia near Cappadocia. If you include both Isocrates and Nepos in the same conversation, and try to figure out what happened to King Cionysus, I think it sounds like a bit of a Cilician civil war or revolt. In the aftermath of Cyrus's rebellion, something must have happened either to cause Cionysus to revolt or be deposed by rebels in fear of retaliation from Artaxerxes. Think about it, he did technically side with Cyrus in the end. There would be motivation to resist Artaxerxes' rule. All our evidence can tell us is that the Persians firmly controlled the East, but we don't know about the West and Socrates seems to imply that it may have been in rebellion. Moving back to firmer ground, just to the north, another rhetorician named Theopompus claims that Pharaoh Hakor backed a new Pisidian revolt as well. We have no further information about that event, but either this Pisidian revolt or the reconquest of western Cilicia sets the stage for the next story about Datames. 
He joined forces with Autophrodates, the satrap of Lydia as of 383, and fought an unnamed rebel force. In that war, the Persians lost a battle and the enemy stormed their camp, but Datames led a Persian counter-assault and drove them off. This netted him some kind of promotion, possibly confirming his role as the satrap of all Cilicia rather than the eastern half. Down in Egypt, Pharaoh Hakor died in 380, succeeded by his son for all of four months before internal revolt toppled the dynasty. Apparently, Hakor's grain and gold were not quite as infinite as he thought, because popular discontent had been sparking riots. Hakor and his heir were between a rock and a hard place. Keeping Persia distracted was essential to their political independence, but their people could only take so much. So the new pharaoh was deposed by one of his own generals, who is now Pharaoh Nakhneb, founder of Egypt's 30th dynasty. He is usually called Nectanebo I in English and Latin, but in reality, the supposed Nectanebo II had a completely different name. We're now pushing into the 370s, and it's time to talk about the general reorganization of responsibility in Anatolia. Many historians of the Achaemenid Empire place this more directly in the aftermath of Cyrus's revolt. But that interpretation doesn't quite mesh with the events playing out in the West, as I discussed in episode 86 when introducing Hecatomnus of Caria. Sometime between Tirabazus's second stint as satrap and Atophrodates' arrival to replace him, Hecatomnus was elevated to become the full-blown satrap of Caria. In a stroke, this split Lydia in twain, with the southwestern third, a rich and strategically valuable region, suddenly becoming independent of Sardis for the first time since the old Lydian king Aliates in the very early episodes of this show. In a way, this resolved the ongoing problem of new, relatively inexperienced satraps ruling over the wealthier province while the established satraps of the Pharnacid dynasty competed with them in Phrygia. Now all three satrapies were on roughly equal terms financially, and Phrygia held the senior dynasty. With the end of the Cilician vassal kingdom, Cilicia also became a distinct satrapy, keeping its naval resources and mints away from the satraps of Caria and Lydia under Datames for the time being. However, this was really just trading one vassal kingdom for another, because Artaxerxes was forced to accept the treaty Orontes signed with Evagoras, making Cypriot Salome an autonomous kingdom in alliance with Persia while the rest of the island remained subject to the same terms of servitude as before. Now, once again, I'm at odds with a lot of scholars here, but for reasons already known to Patreon subscribers that will be explained in a later episode, 
I'm going to put another policy change here as well. In 384, Artaxerxes II dispatched a Jewish noble named Nehemiah from the royal court to Jerusalem to take on the role of local governor in Judea and rebuild the holy city's walls. Naturally, the biblical book of Nehemiah keeps this more or less in a vacuum and attributes it to God's favor and the final stage of rebuilding projects initiated all the way back under Cyrus the Great, who was inspired by the Jewish God. However, since the reign of Xerxes, local powers like Samaria and Ashdod had repeatedly warned the great kings that allowing Jerusalem to rebuild its defenses would be a mistake in light of their history of resistance to Assyria and Babylon. That seems to have remained a Caymanid policy up till now. In the context of increasing threats from Egypt, it seems plausible that Nehemiah was permitted to undertake this project to build up Persian resistance in the Levant. Any fears of rebellion could be soothed by the presence of a Persian overseer named Bagoas, who had already been stationed there for several decades. In the late 380s, Nakhtneb reached out to Athens, initiating something of a new trend in Aegean politics. He knew that the Greeks couldn't enter into full-blown alliance with Egypt and fight the Persians, and he didn't want them to. But seeing as so many of the available mercenaries were Greek, maybe they could send him an experienced general. Chabrius, who was officially still an elected strategos, a general of the Athenian army, took up the offer. He went to command Egypt's mercenaries in the eastern delta region and started building fortifications near Pelusium. As this was happening, Pharnabazus returned to the Levant, taking up residence in the fortress city of Acre. He dispatched a letter to Athens, warning them that letting Chabrius work for Egypt risked alienating Persia in the midst of their ongoing war. Athens quickly recalled their general, in part from Pharnabazus' threat, and in part because they needed him to keep fighting Sparta. Pharnabazus added that if Athens really wanted to make up for this perceived slight, they'd send him a general to command his own Greek forces. They dispatched Iphricrates, the hero of the Corinthian War, who took charge of the Ionian Greeks and sundry mercenaries in Pharnabazus' invasion force. In the long run, this turn of events was great for both Athenians' careers. Iphricrates made great use of his time with Pharnabazus, and Chabrius got home just in time to become a war hero. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. 
The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. No sooner was Anatolia reorganized in a seeming effort to limit the power of any one satrap than the specter of war in Greece reared its head once again. From references in Nepos that call Ariobarzanes the satrap of Lydia, Ionia, and Phrygia, and in Diodorus, where Ariobarzanes' control over Anatolia is referred to as his kingdom, it sounds like Ariobarzanes, the son of Pharnabazus II, was Carinos. It should be noted that Artaxerxes seems to have been careful and not given the new viceroy control over Cappadocia as Cyrus the Younger had. This appointment may also have motivated the separation of Caria and Lydia, allowing one commander to control all of the most problematic Greek cities without giving him absolute control of the whole region. During the war against Olynthos that I breezed through in the last episode, Agesilaus's young co-king died and was replaced by his even younger brother, Cleombrotus I. In their supposed campaign to enforce the king's peace, the Spartans did have to institute new governments in the Chalcidician cities, and wouldn't you know it, these were oligarchic pro-Spartan governments. On their way north, a Spartan army had even helped one of the pro-oligarchy factions in Thebes by occupying the city and functionally seizing control of Thebes for several years. Functionally only. Technically, it was ruled by Theban oligarchs who just asked Sparta for help. See, no powerful city-states governing other powerful city-states. 
just like Artaxerxes wanted. 300 pro-democracy Thebans fled to Athens, where they convinced the Athenians to provide a few military officers and aid them in a covert operation to return to their city and assassinate the oligarchs. With them dead, the Democrats were able to spur a general revolt and expel the Spartans. And with that, Greece's Boeotian War began. Sparta dispatched young King Cleombrotus with an army to attack Thebes. The geography of this conflict immediately created a problem. The land west of Thebes is mountainous, necessitating an approach from the south over land through Corinthian and Athenian territory. Corinth was in no condition to oppose anybody after the last war, but the Spartans knew that Athens would never just let them pass through Attica. Cleombrotus carefully avoided Athenian forts and cities as he went, but it was a slight miscalculation. When Athens caught wind of the Spartan army, they didn't intervene. Instead, they actually reprimanded the officers they had sent to assist with the coup in Thebes. Once in Boeotia, Cleombrotus actually offered favorable negotiations. Enter into a formal alliance with the Peloponnesian League, and you can keep your new government. The only problem was that for a treaty with Sparta to be approved, both kings had to sign off, and Agesilus was having none of it. He wanted nothing less than complete submission and an oligarchy in Thebes. So Cleombrotus had to go home while Agesilus took the field. Up to this point, the king's peace still technically held if only by the last threads of the papyrus it was written on. But then, the Spartan commander left in Boeotia did something stupid. On his own initiative, he launched a preemptive strike on the Athenian Piraeus, which was on the far side of Attica from his base. Accounts vary from a Theban bribe to secret orders to simple insubordination. On paper, it might have seemed like a good idea. Surely Athens would eventually join the war on the side of their fellow Democrats. But up to this point, Athens had stayed studiously neutral. The Spartan army never reached the Piraeus, and was confronted and forced to retreat, pillaging Athenian territory as they went. This was a bald-faced attack based on the political system chosen by a city that had not attacked Sparta in any way, and had, in fact, allowed Sparta to march through their territory unmolested. Athens, quite correctly, declared that the king's peace was broken and that they would join Thebes in a new war. As is tradition at this point, both sides in Greece called on every single ally they had, and the war escalated rapidly. Agesilus marched out in summer 378, and held the field for the next year and a half. 377 saw the foundation of a new alliance to formalize the anti-Spartan coalition, the Second Athenian League. 
That was something to make Persian hair stand on end, so much so that its founding document specifically included clauses about maintaining the king's peace and reassurance to Persia. A copy was almost certainly sent to Ariobarzanes for approval, to assuage any potential fears. Not only was membership voluntary this time, but it was by application only. A potential member had to ask to join, and could not be forced into the alliance. Athens specified that new members would be self-governing, and no member could impose garrisons, governors, tribute, or military quotas on the others. They would be allowed to seek bilateral alliances outside the treaty, and most importantly of all for Persia, the new league would neither recruit Anatolian Greeks nor approve their applications to join. In 376, command returned to Cleombrotus, who led a series of campaigns through Attica and into Boeotia. Over the course of the war, Plataea had been captured by the Spartans and was recaptured by Thebes. Outright Theban rule over another city concerned Athens. Not only did it violate the nominal cause of the war, but also the terms of the Second Athenian League, which Thebes had agreed to. In 375, a pair of Athenian victories at land and sea convinced Artaxerxes to dispatch ambassadors to Greece and force Sparta to the negotiating table. Both sides agreed to restore the king's peace. But we're talking about Greece, so this lasted for a few months. Thebes once again insisted on signing for all of Boeotia, causing Sparta to back out because the Thebans were not abiding by their own terms. In Persian territory, preparations were underway. The shipyards of the Mediterranean coast had been hard at work restoring the Persian fleet for almost a decade, and a true royal army was gathering under the command of Pharnabazus. As always, Greek numbers are less helpful than we'd like with claims of 200,000 troops, equivalent to Xerxes' great invasion of Greece at a much more stable time for the empire. However, Diodorus's claim that Iphicrates took command of 20,000 Hellenic soldiers isn't implausible, and Greek sources are generally better with Greek numbers. If we compare it to Cyrus the Younger's army, we may be looking at a force of around 70,000. Certainly the largest the Western Empire had seen for decades. We don't know what Pharnabazus was doing in the years between Iphicrates' arrival and the actual invasion. But with a base in Acre, we can take a guess. Many sources hint at trouble in Palestine and Arabia, but neither seem to be a problem by the time the army set out. So, in all likelihood, Pharnabazus oversaw operations to get the southwestern empire back in line. Despite a relatively middling birth, Iphicrates had risen high enough in the Athenian government after the Peloponnesian War that he married a Thracian princess, daughter of King Cotys. 
after leading the Athenian support for the new Idrissian king in a succession crisis during the 380s. While there, he observed the tactics of the Thracian Peltasts in their own territory, rather than as low-ranking mercenary filler in Greece. He took this information and used his time with the Egyptian invasion force to experiment. Pharnabazus wanted a Greek commander who would know best how to apply Greek tactics. But instead, Ephricrates restructured the Greek contingent from top to bottom. Traditional Greek warfare focused on the shield wall, with huge hoplon shields creating a bulwark that left only the right hand free to wield a spear. These shields were large and overlapped like scales, making it difficult to maneuver once you were in formation. That was fine for a typical Greek battle where two similar phalanxes could charge one another, or for frightening, less well-defended Persian skirmishers. But the Greeks were hardly the only people to employ that style of battle, and everyone in the Aegean had their own ways of dealing with those tactics. In our episodes on the Retreat of the Ten Thousand, we saw how standard Greek tactics left them woefully unprepared to handle ancient Near Eastern armies on their own turf. And actually, it's been a while since we talked about Greek armies. Really, since the Battle of Marathon, I think. Frankly, there wasn't a ton of change between then and Xerxes' invasion, and in more recent events, we've been focused on the navies, raids, and skirmishes, with the obvious exception of Cunaxa. But now, Marathon is almost 120 years behind us, and Greece spent almost that entire span of time at war in one way or another. There had been changes. The Greeks had always used some cavalry, missile troops, and skirmishers. They actually played a big role at Plataea, if you remember episode 53. However, the core of Greek armies was supposed to be the phalanx, a tightly packed block of hoplites with sturdy armor and big round shields, and two-meter-long spears with broad blades on one end and a spike on the other. That hadn't changed much, though the hoplites themselves gradually abandoned most of their armor, as it became clear that this style of warfare didn't really require heavy bronze plates on their arms and legs. During the Peloponnesian Wars between Athens and Sparta, the Greek world entered into something of an arms race, with each side trying to outman the other. The expansion of their respective navies is something we've spent a lot of time on. The growth of the Delian and Peloponnesian leagues into the cities of Boeotia, Thessaly, and coastal Thrace also opened up new, flatter terrain to the major powers of southern Greece, making the role of cavalry more important. For context, the Athenian cavalry corps grew fourfold at the height of the Delian League, and that was just the contingent from Athens itself. Traditionally, Greek armies were actually composed of relatively wealthy men, 
you had to provide your own equipment, and even the trimmed-down hoplite pit was expensive. As wars in Greece grew larger, more people from the lower rungs of society were brought into the military to serve as lightly armed skirmishers. Increased contact with Thrace, and presumably the slightly more centralized organization of the Odrysian kingdom, also fueled the market for mercenaries, and scores of lightly armored Thracians equipped with little shields called pelta were hired to supplement Athenian and Spartan armies. The weapons and tactics of those soldiers were adopted by Greeks, giving birth to the Peltasts, who made up ever-larger contingents on the battlefield. We saw all of this at Kunaxa and the flight of the 10,000 mercenaries. We also saw how the Peltasts and Hoplites were separate units, until their commanders realized they needed mixed-unit tactics to fight the Persians in Mesopotamia. That was the standard organization in Greece. Cavalry is here, hoplites are there, peltasts are over there. Three separate, distinct units that did not intermingle. Iphicrates took away his soldiers' huge hoplon shields and replaced them with Thracian pelta. Unlike the hoplon, the pelta could be strapped to a soldier's forearm, leaving the left hand free, and the oval shape of the shield made it easier to raise and lower or turn the left arm without running into the man next to you. This maneuverability allowed the mercenaries to make use of longer weapons. Iphicrates took away their spears as well and replaced them with longer pikes now about three meters, nine feet long. He did the same thing with their secondary weapons, doubling the length of their swords. Iphicrates' final innovation was actually the soldier's footwear, with boots that were lighter and easier to untie. Easier than what, God only knows. Greek art shows everything from sandals to Persian-style slippers to things that look like leather socks and belt buckle closures. Based on grave finds in the Balkans, these new boots may have been copied from the original Thracian peltasts. And if he had interacted with the 10,000, one of Xenophon's chief complaints was about their shoes during the retreat. As the son of a cobbler, it makes sense that Iphicrates took an interest. While the Boeotian War played out in Greece, Anatolia didn't remain entirely quiet. Datames was sent north to assist Ariobarzanes with a war against the Paphlagonians. You might recall that Paphlagonia had been in a state of revolt almost continuously since Cyrus the Younger. Part of the Phrygian satrapy, they had circumvented their governor when Pharnabazus chose not to participate in Cyrus's campaign, and had remained at odds with the great king at least until the end of Agesilus's invasion in 394, but even then we don't actually hear about their rulers coming to terms, just one of their commanders going over to Persia. Datames was chosen to negotiate the end of ongoing hostilities because his mother was actually the aunt of the Paphlagonian petty king, Thus, 
part of the endless string of marriage alliances holding the empire together. The king agreed to parley without guards, planning to assassinate the unsuspecting satrap himself. But family's a real pain in the ass, and some relatives informed Datames of the plot, leading to open war. In the course of the campaign, Datames was separated from Ariobarzani's main force and managed to defeat his rebel cousin in battle, taking Thus alive. He raced ahead of the messengers bringing news of his victory to deliver Thus to Artaxerxes in person, making a show out of it, and winning a claim from the great king, including a promotion to become the new satrap of Cappadocia. To facilitate this, a marriage was arranged between Datames and a Persian noblewoman, to give his heirs the social status befitting of a satrap of the great king. One of Datames' first assignments as satrap was to marshal his forces and head south to assist Pharnabazus with the campaign against Egypt. The invasion commenced in 373 BCE. Preparations had been underway for years on both sides, so it's no shock that Pharaoh Nakhtneb was prepared for the Persians when they arrived. Pharnabazus was replicating Cambyses' invasion in many ways, and found the border city of Pelusium well defended. Not just the city itself, but the branch of the Nile that met the Mediterranean there was also heavily fortified. A wooden drawbridge hung low over the water, preventing ships from entering the river. Watchtowers manned by archers guarded the bridge to fire down on the decks of Persian ships. Earthworks built by Chabrius guarded the towers, preventing an amphibious landing, with a sizable Egyptian host dedicated just to defending the Pelusiac mouth of the river. Rather than assisting with the siege of Pelusium as intended, the fleet had to sail past the army in search of one of the Nile's other estuaries. Pharnabazus and Iphicrates joined them, bringing a few thousand men from the army to aid in an amphibious landing should the need arise. Scouting ships reported that all seven of the river mouths were defended by similar bridges and watchtowers, but they were not as well manned and had no earthworks. So they went to the second eastern estuary, the Mendesian Mouth, where their forebears had once defeated an Athenian fleet during the last major Egyptian revolt. There, Pharnabazus and Iphicrates led 3,000 men onto the beaches, sailing their ships right up onto the sand to disembark. It was enough of a surprise that the Egyptians only came out to face them after the Persians were on land. In the ensuing battle, the Egyptians had the advantage of cavalry, but the Persians had numbers. More ships came ashore, and marines and sailors jumped down to reinforce the initial landing party. Eventually, the Persian levies encircled the Egyptians, allowing Iphicrates to lead some of his mercenaries and storm the Egyptian gatehouse to raise the drawbridge. From there, they must have taken Pelusium from the west 
to get their troops through, but Diodorus doesn't mention it, so who knows. It is technically possible that the fleet shuttled everyone around to Mendes. After taking the city of Mendes, where they first came ashore, the army was split on what to do next. Prisoners from the earlier Persian campaigns, and possibly even from the initial revolt in 401, were still being held in Memphis. They began slipping out letters to tell Pharnabazus that Memphis was almost completely undefended. There was no Egyptian garrison stationed there at the time, because the recent pharaohs had relocated the capital to their home cities. In Nakhtneb's case, it was the city of Sebenutos on the central Nile Delta. The problem was, Iphicrates thought they should just take Memphis, since it was such a soft target, and Pharnabazus wanted to campaign further north, presumably marching on Sebenutos. Diodorus, in true Greek libelous style, blames all of this on Persian incompetence, cowardice, and robotic obedience to orders, claiming that Pharnabazus couldn't do anything without getting permission from the king. This is obvious nonsense. Persian satraps and generals had immense leeway in their own campaigns. See every other war we've ever talked about, including the ones that Diodorus talked about. The more likely story is that Iphicrates was ignorant of the wider situation, given how often the Greeks seem to know nothing about non-Greek geography and politics. The Athenian general heard Memphis, knew that was the satrap's capital and a very important city that could be taken if it wasn't defended, and assumed it was a good plan. But Memphis is in the middle of the country, and going straight there would leave very wealthy and very heavily populated parts of the Nile Delta in the Persian rear, including Nakhtneb's capital. In a vain attempt to compromise, Iphicrates offered to just take the Greek mercenaries, and Pharnabazus refused. Of course he wasn't going to send a third of his army into a death trap in the middle of Egypt, Look at what happened the last time an Athenian general botched an attack on Memphis. The Persians slaughtered them, and the Egyptians would doubtless do the same. The plan must have been to move swiftly through the Nile Delta, capturing key cities like Mendes and Pelusium, then march inland to face and depose Nakhtneb. Defeating the pharaoh would not necessarily recapture Egypt in its entirety, but it would cause internal chaos that the Persians could exploit and allow Pharnabazus to consolidate reconquered territory. Iphicrates imagined himself as the Clearchus to Pharnabazus's Cyrus. In reality, he was more like Kerasophus, invited to sit on war councils and important for foreign relations but not held in high regard. That did not stop the Athenian from bemoaning Pharnabazus's incompetence, which in turn earned him accusations of undermining the campaign from other Persian commanders. The real problem, though, was the simple passage of time. 
Breaking through the border defenses took longer than they had planned. It gave Nachtneb time to prepare and launch a counteroffensive. A garrison was sent to guard Memphis, but more importantly, the Egyptian army marched up the Mendesian branch of the Delta and began fighting overwhelmed Persian detachments sent to reoccupy eastern Egypt. They pressed on to Mendes itself, which Pharnabazus had made his command center. The Persians defended themselves with great success, but the Nile's annual flooding was heavy that year, and since the river flows south to north, it reached the Egyptian lines first, inundating the ground around the city and allowing ships to sail right up to the walls, while the Persian navy was stuck on the other side. The flooding also provided additional defenses for the Egyptian army by blocking the Persian approach to their camp. Pharnabazus was forced to abandon Mendes and retreat back to Acre. Fearing he would be used as a scapegoat for the invasion's failure, Iphicrates commandeered his own ship and went home to Athens. The Athenians promised to investigate and punish him on Pharnabazus' behalf. They made him one of their generals in 372 and continued the war with Sparta, not thinking too much about the Persians. This was another long one, so we will leave it here. With Pharnabazus forced to retreat yet again, Pharaoh Nachtnab firmly on the Egyptian throne, and Greece continuously embroiled in its own conflict. Next time, things take a turn for the worst on all fronts. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. 
I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.